I am usually in a constant dialogue with myself. No, Maura, you're not going to die on the plane when you go down to New York for that meeting. No, Maura, your son is not going to die if he goes out on a boat. No, Maura, you're not a fraud and that client didn't return your call just because she's busy. It doesn't mean that she's going to fire you. It's like a constant dialogue. And so that, of course, can make life a little challenging if you're not managing it and understanding what causes it. Because, you know, anxiety isn't real. Anxiety is a fear of something that might happen. It's not true. Welcome to Elevate, a podcast about achievement, personal growth, and pushing limits in leadership and life. I'm Robert Glazer, and I chat with world-class performers who have committed to elevating their own life, pushing the limits of their capacity, and helping others to do the same. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast. Our quote for today is from Jody Picoult, and it is, anxiety is like a rocking chair. It gives you something to do, but it doesn't get you very far. Our guest today, Maura Ahrens-Mile, has dedicated herself to understanding the impact of anxiety on our personal and professional lives. She's the founder of the social impact agency, Women Online, and an expert online marketer. She's also the author of best-selling book, Hiding in the Bathroom, and her writing has been published in Harvard Business Review, The New York Times, Oprah Magazine, The Wall Street Journal, and much more. She's also the host of the Anxious Achiever podcast presented by Harvard Business Review. Maura, welcome. It's great to have you on the Elevate podcast. Well, thanks. I'm happy to be here. I think we should start off with the story of our, our rebooking, you know, about anxiety, where I, I, I was on vacation last week and the, the internet was not as good as I thought. And I emailed her and I said, I'm so sorry, but can we push this? And, and she said, uh, I'm throwing up on vacation. So, so that, would be, that would be great. So we're both in a better place this week. Indeed, indeed. It wasn't just me throwing up. It was my kids and me. Oh, so was that, uh, was that just a bug or was that seasickness? <laughs> no, it was just, I mean, who knows? It was just a yeah. bug. Of course, now, of course, we all freak out. Um, my daughter spiked a really high fever. Yeah. So we were very anxious. But I think it, we got COVID tested. We were negative. But, um, but it's funny. I think anyone listening can appreciate that feeling of like when you really want to cancel a meeting, but you feel that you can't for whatever reason. And I did not want to cancel our podcast. And then <laughs> you canceled it. And I, I think I wrote to you, thank God, everyone's throwing up. Uh, yeah, I'm curious how you're going to manage that. That may have been interesting. Like, let me think about that question for five minutes. Uh, I'll be right back. Yeah. So I, I always like to start uh, at the beginning. And I'd love to hear what was the beginning of your career like? Did you start out in, in marketing or did that come later? I was a huge film buff. And so I wanted to work in the film industry. And I had taken some time off college to be an intern at, at Warner Brothers in London. And when I graduated in 1998, I was so lucky I got a job at a really cool, independent production company in New York City. I was the publicity assistant which was a great first job because I went to Sundance. And basically what I did was I babysat movie stars all day long. I took George Clooney around. I would meet them in airports. I mean, I had a very famous movie star throw a box of cereal at me. I had someone on my team do the same thing. Were they nice to you? That's the question. Yeah. Um, <laughs> some were. Some, you know who was nice to me? The European indie unknown guys. Right. The big time movie stars. Not so much. Not so nice. But, you know, all my really smart friends were going to work at these internet companies. This was during the first dot-com boom. And 
I sort of wanted a bigger challenge. So I faxed, I was reading Variety one morning. My job was to get in at like 6.30 a.m. and read through all the entertainment pubs and the newspapers to literally cut out clips about our movies and about the industry. And I was reading in Variety and I had I read that this very big senior woman from NBC was moving to a website called iVillage.com to run yeah. communications. And I faxed her and I said, do you need an executive assistant? And I swear, not 20 minutes later, they called me and they said, she needs an executive assistant. And so that's how I got into the internet. And iVillage was like part of the prototype of the sort of dot-com 1.0, right? A hundred percent. It was, but you know, everything I learned and I still use today, I learned at iVillage. It was, right. It was so fast. It was crazy. So was that like late nineties? 99. Yeah. 98, 99. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was when I graduated and, and now I'm, I'm dating myself. But if I told people the stories of what <laughs> went on at these dot coms, oh I, I don't think they would believe me. I, I remember companies in New York City were, were, like paying homeless people to come sit in their air on chairs so they looked like they had more employees because venture capital firms were investing just based on how big the company seemed at the time. Come on. No, did you ever work in Silicon Alley? I did not. I, I was outside of New York, but I just, that dot-com bubble was just, it was absurd. The, the funniest thing for me was, and this actually happened until about 10 years ago, people thought that because I was the internet person yeah. that I could also fix computers <laughs> and like handle you start. All of- <laughs> That's how you fix the problem. <laughs> exactly. And I'd always be like, I don't know anything about computers. I just work on the internet. And it, it really took a long time for that transition to happen. Of course, now it's so sophisticated, but yeah, it was a long time coming, but it was so easy back then to get a job in .com because like nobody knew what the heck they were doing. Yeah. And I remember when it, when it started unraveling and people would get laid off, they would just leave with their air on chair. Yep. They, and take it on the subway <laughs> in, New, in New York. <laughs> totally. So when did you reach the point where you decided to start your own agency? Well, I started my own agency. It was a very slow start. So I actually just started freelancing when I went to graduate school. In, I actually quit corporate America in 2006. I was working at Edelman, which is a huge um, communications firm. I had actually started their digital public affairs team in Washington because I had been working in politics for a while. I, I eventually left iVillage and went back to politics, which is my, my true love, and applied all that great internet marketing stuff to politics. And so Edelman recruited me over after the 2004 election. And um, I lasted at Edelman for 16 months. I cried every day. I was not cut out for that world. And I decided to go to graduate school and upend my life. And I just started freelancing to make money and put myself through grad school. So I did that for about three years. And then, you know, I just got more work and I needed help. And by 2011, I had this business. I mean, I I'd never call myself an entrepreneur and I have never felt like an entrepreneur because it really felt very accidental to me. And also because I'm kind of a risk averse person, Yeah, it just sort of evolved. And so what's the mission of Women's Online? So Women Online is a social change uh, marketing agency. We are probably the only, we used to be, the only agency that works at the intersection of women influencers, right? So women who've built up 
big platforms who are content creators who used to, you know, we started as a mom blogger agency a long time ago, but of course yeah. now that's evolved. So we work with really powerful women who want to use their influence for good. And so we work with nonprofit clients, political clients, social change organizations, foundations, groups like the UN who really, really want to get their message out to women and who want to create a smart digital strategy um, that usually includes mobilizing these women's voices. Yeah, and, and it's been a fascinating space to evolve as everyone builds, everyone basically has their own personal brand these days. Well, I mean, this is the thing, right? And and I, I firsthand, you know, people love to poo-poo women's work anyway, but people really like to make fun of women who are big online. And and I'm and of course there's Kim Kardashian who's the biggest, but you know, even women who are moms who are just blogging about their everyday life or Instagramming about it, you know, it's an easy target. But for me, and this I learned at iVillage and then I learned it at blogher.com where I also worked, is that a, a woman speaking her truth is radical no matter what, even if she's just writing about diapers. And B, you know, corporate work kind of sucks for women. We're finally realizing this. And if a woman can find a way to make a living or even make some extra money on her own time by sharing her truth and talking about what she likes, that's awesome. You know, like we should all aspire to that. Yeah, I mean, I, I had an early window into that, what we do and, and, and running an affiliate agency and understanding. Mm-hmm. I always tell people, they're like, what are you doing? I'm like, you know that blog you read that has the 100,000 followers and she doesn't do that out of the goodness of their heart. She's making a lot of money <laughs> every, time right. you, every time you click on those products. And, and I, you know, I would, would see what some of these people were making and you could, yeah, beats an office job uh, any day and twice on Sunday. Well, I mean, and that's the thing, and, and we should be clear, right? And you know this better than me, that that most people do not make a ton of money. You yeah. know, everyone, I call it blogger disease. You know, people call me and my colleagues up and they're like, how do I like quit my day job and become an Instagram in- influencer? Yeah. It's a ton of work. It is a grind. And most people don't make a ton of money, but the ability to make a little bit of money or even a nice chunk of money, I think is within your grasp if you're willing to put the work in and create good content. Yeah, I, I get the same thing too. What kind of site should I start that would exactly. make money? And I say, look, the ones you see making a lot of money didn't do that initially. They started this site. They loved barbecue. They loved fashion. They were gen. You got to write about it every day, so it's hard to fake it. And then they got really popular, and then they had monetization. It's very hard to start something for the wrong reasons. So I, I think people approach that backwards. People, a hundred percent. And I've never made a cent off. I mean, I've made a few cents off anything I've done or written online. I'm a failed yeah. mom blogger. I write about politics and activism and now anxiety. Like, no one wants to pay for that. <laughs> but, but the drug companies can't pay you for leads based on that. Please, so that, that I kills wish. Your market. I'd be a gazillionaire then. But, um, but, but it's my true passion. Right. And I think that's the reason to do it. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? Two years ago, I bought a dual suspension mountain bike for the first time and it pushed me to ride trails that I had never been willing to try before. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has exceptional capability that will have you seeing the possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. The Lexus GX comes with available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, best-in-class towing capacity, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. I've seen the new Lexus GX popping up all around my town, and not only does it have the capabilities to take you to new places on and off the road, but it's a great-looking car. 
the new Lexus GX is ready to raise the bar for you. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and free. LinkedIn isn't just a job board. It helps you identify and hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. Case in point, last year I asked the CEO of a major ski resort how he got his job, and he told me that he saw it on LinkedIn and decided to apply. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. The team at LinkedIn is also constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process easier and quicker. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash practical. That's linkedin.com slash practical to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. So you describe yourself as an anxious introvert. Define that for us. And then what have you discovered are the challenges and the unexpected positives of having that temperament in our professional world? I would add also, I'm a, I'm a really ambitious, anxious introvert. Ambitious. Okay. Yes, which adds a whole other layer. You know, being an introvert is a sort of temperament or character trait. We hear that word and I think we sort of assign some values to it, you know, right. yep. but being an introvert is kind of straightforward. It, it doesn't mean that you're quiet or shy or a wallflower or that you hate people. It just really means that you have a different level of um, equilibrium in this world, you know, that you are probably happy in a quiet environment. You like to be alone. You just need time to recharge. You might be very sensitive to external stimuli like lighting and music. It doesn't mean that you are going to hide in a basement and never talk to people. It is just sort of where you're at your natural equilibrium in terms of energy and feeling, you know, good and balanced in your life and work. And so that's me. I Part of the reason why I, I never made it in politics and I didn't make it at Edelman was that I, you know, going and showing up at an office every day, like I was ready for battle, just took everything out of me. It was exhausting. Yeah. I just, I could not summon the energy to go to all those meetings and fight for what I believed in and fight for my turf and go to the happy hours and just do all the FaceTime. I, I was exhausted. I loved freelancing because I could do the same exact work, but I could do it at my kitchen table and then I could get up and take a walk. It was like a life changer. So that's the introvert piece. I love to be alone. I'm very happy in my own, my own company. The anxious piece is different. And a lot of people ascribe social anxiety to introversion, but they're two different things. Social anxiety is a kind of anxiety. Social anxiety means that um, human interactions, whether big or small, so whether you and I were going to get a cup of coffee or I was going to go talk in front of 2,000 people, would just sort of rile up a whole lot of feeling in me and all of them negative. It's really about shame and being, you know, Dr. Ellen Hendrickson, who I love, always says it's about the fear of the reveal that I'm going to go meet with you for a job and you're going to say, you suck, Maura. Why would I hire you? You're a fraud. No one likes you right? It's that feeling. And I have that very deeply. And I have a lot of other anxieties. I have um, panic anxiety disorder. I have a lot of anxiety around loss. 
And so sort of everyday life is really hard for me. I am usually in a constant dialogue with myself. No, Maura, you're not going to die on the plane when you go down to New York for that meeting. No, Maura, your son is not going to die if he goes out on a boat. No, Maura, you're not a fraud and that client didn't return your call just because she's busy. It doesn't mean that she's going to fire you. It's like a constant dialogue. And so that, of course, can make life a little challenging if you're not managing it and understanding what causes it. Because, you know, anxiety isn't real. Anxiety is a fear of something that might happen. Yeah. It's not true. And, and I mean, we talked about this, but I think most entrepreneurs have a high level of anxiety. Uh, a of lot course of them. they do. <laughs> at, the, at the risk of overgeneralizing, I, I'm guessing a lot of the male ones do not talk about it. <laughs> I think it's not as as discussed, but in some ways it's a driving force a little bit, right? I mean, you, it's hard to be complacent when you have some level of anxiety. Anxiety is natural and it's necessary. You know, if you talk to any scholar or doctor um, who studies anxiety, they'll say that anxiety, of course, is part of the human condition because back when we were running away from bears all day, we needed to worry, you know? Yeah. If I leave my kid left alone for a second, is a bear going to come? Well, that's anxiety, but that's very useful. Um, now we don't have bears chasing us, but we have a lot of other really scary things, both internal, external, some very true, some we may feel are true, but are not. But of course, it's part of the human condition. And a little bit of anxiety is really crucial. Dr. David Barlow, who's sort of the godfather of anxiety treatment and cognitive behavioral therapy tactics for anxiety, will say, you want to be anxious. Yeah. That's how athletes win gold medals and people discover new vaccines. Yeah. You know, a moderate amount of anxiety is adaptive. The problem that we get into is when it becomes maladaptive and it overtakes our thoughts and stops us from doing what we want to do and are meant to do. Exactly. If you're like, oh, everything will be fine. It's all good. Nothing to yeah. worry about here. That I don't need to get up early <laughs> and do this. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so right now we are living in an an epidemic of anxiety, even before, I mean, right now, even before COVID-19, which I, I think has amplified everything. So what, what are you hearing from people in terms of, you know, we talk a lot about, I think, in other symptoms, is there more, is there more anxiety now or is there more awareness or, or reporting or acknowledgement of anxiety? I mean, that's, that's hard, right? Because it, it's hard to know a baseline. Yeah. I think the good news is that Mental health is being understood and put into question in yeah. a way that it wasn't before. I think people understand how important protecting your mental health is. And my, my fervent hope is that the, the stigma will go away and we'll understand that everyone has mental health and sometimes we're well and sometimes we're unwell, just the same way as that I had a stomach bug last week and I was unwell and now I'm yeah. well again. Um, and some people are unwell for long periods of time. So I think that what's really hard for everyone right now is that the clear and present danger is real. No one knows the answer. And we are living in 100% real uncertainty and humans hate uncertainty. Yeah. Part of anxiety, what people who are anxious do is we attempt to create control over things that really can't be controlled. And I think a lot of people are waking up and saying, I've spent the past 20 years of my life working so hard, building my business, running five miles a day, sending my kids to the best schools so that everything would be great. Yeah. 
and oh my God, we all might die. And there's two pieces to that, right? I think I think there's the anxiety about the unknown or what they can't control. But there's also a little piece that's almost entitlement, I would say, that everything is supposed to go according to plan always. 100%. <laughs> I, I've been in some debates with people around the changes to schools or camps and the parents are calling and they're protesting and they want it this way. And you're like, it's a hundred year pandemic. Like it's not going to be normal. <laughs> you who, know, to- I, who told you you deserve, I mean, right. so the, you're getting <laughs> yeah. very Buddhist now, right? Yeah. Like the Buddhist right. scholars would say the first step to achieving, you know, equilibrium is accepting that you have no reason to hope that things will ever be good. And you need to, you need to lean into hopelessness, right? Right. There's no hope. But those of us who have sort of grown up in this period of success and drive, and if I just push hard enough, my kid will get that. And if I just do this, it will happen. We forgot that. Yeah. And I guess there, there's, I have about 12 questions. I'll see if I can <laughs> break them down. So the first going back is talking about mental health. Talking about mental health in the workplace, are, are we making progress there? I actually feel like COVID has forced us to talk about mental health in the workplace the last couple of months. Well, what, do, what are you hearing? You probably hear a lot. What are you hearing? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I live in a little bit of a bubble, I think, of smaller companies. And a lot of people I know are pretty, pretty progressive with mm-hmm. how they're running their organizations. But I do think people are openly talking about stress and the impacts on them and stuff, you know, right now. I I just don't know whether the average person is comfortable talking about their mental health challenges in the workplace or they feel like they will be stigmatized or not trusted or otherwise. You know, I think like all things, A, there's intersections with gender, race, class, life stage. And so, I mean, I always joke if white men started talking about how anxious they were, everything would change. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So if you're a white man listening, and if you're a manager listening, you know, you can lead by example. You don't have to tell everyone that you're a wreck and you're, you know, you're worried you're going to run out of money and you were up at 4 a.m. moving all your cash around. But you could say at a meeting, wow, this is super stressful. Does anyone else, you know, I I think that leadership, like in all things, just plays a huge role here. And so if we just talk about it, it will become much more normal because frankly, who isn't anxious right now? So that's what I was going to ask you. What what do the company and the manager, what can they do to hold more in space for employees? Is it, is it, actually being vulnerable themselves. And and it sounds like you're saying they need to show this, like I am in control, but I have these issues too, to open the door. But other than that, how do you think they should open space for people to come, to come forward and, and be, you know, you take a day off when you're physically sick, but you know, why are you taking the day off today? Like, I, I think, are those discussions happening? It would be amazing if, if leaders would just take a day off and say, you know, I just really needed some space. That would yeah. be amazing. I think like in all things, a, it's a very particular thing. You know, some leaders say, I'm off to therapy, I'll see you in an hour, and some keep it close to the vest. And of course, that's yeah. your choice. Going to the dentist. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I think the key is that it's a little bit like parenting. Your people want to see you as someone who has got it together to some extent, right? right. It's not okay to process your mess in front of your people, <laughs> yeah. but a little bit of vulnerability, and there is so much data behind this, human compassion is 
such a powerful leadership quality. I always come back to the work by Amy Cuddy and a bunch of researchers that shows that ideal leaders, what people really want from their leaders are warmth and competence, not confidence, competence. I am human like you. I am feeling scared like you. I cannot read the future. I cannot promise you everything's going to be okay. But here's what we're going to do. We're going to take 30 minutes. We're going to look at our deliverables. We're going to look where we're at. And we're going to do the best we can. So it sounds like what you're saying is they will have better luck in not what they say or in a policy, but the behavior that they model down to people below them. Doesn't that make sense? I mean, policies are great, but the question that I always get is, I'm not a therapist. I don't want to be my employee's therapist. What? Nobody wants you to be your employee's therapist. Don't worry. If you run a large enough company, it would be amazing if you got onto your healthcare that your employees could access therapists. That would be awesome. If you're comfortable talking about if therapy made a difference to you, that would be awesome. You do not need to break boundaries. You do not need to talk about you or your employees' most personal problems because that's really not professional and not helpful. But I think an acknowledgement that we are all human and this is hard is important. As this becomes more common in the workplace to talk about these issues, do you think that there's training or there's risk for managers who feel like, oh, I'm getting asked stuff that I shouldn't answer or someone's coming to them asking for help and they're trying to solve it as their manager, but it's really getting into the realm of, of mental health and stuff that they are not competent to handle. How, how do you think organizations need to think about it? I don't mean it from a, a risk, from a, like a liability right, standpoint. Right, like a legal perspective. Yeah, like a legal. But I, we had a brief microcosm of this. We did something, a very vulnerable thing last year. We had people give a part of a program called One Last Talk, where they gave hmm. sort of what's the last talk you'd want to give. It was facilitated by someone who was part of our retreat. And there was deep stuff talked about in those things, but there was also a lot of incredible sharing that went on afterwards in the exercise. And, you know, it was a little bit of getting Pandora back in the box. Mm, mm-hmm. <laughs> you can't unsee what you saw. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Or also someone saying, oh, well, what's my responsibility as a manager, if I know that Mora, you know, maybe has this this issue or these things going on, I, I'm not, isn't my place to ask questions about that or try to provide resources? I don't, I don't think companies are used to this. So I, I think as we open this up a little bit, there are going to be dialogues, um, particularly around some of the stuff. And I'm, I'm interested, you know, how you think about that. I mean, it's hard. I, I want to acknowledge that. It's yeah. hard. And sometimes people don't always keep to the boundaries that we wish they would. If you're in a big enough company where you can refer something to HR, I think that that's always a valid thing to do. Or you right. know, if there's a person on staff, if a chief of staff or someone who's a COO whose job it is to sort of deal with that. But I think it's also okay to say, you know, I think you're hurting right now. This is not what I can help you with. I would love you to try to find some help. And I promise you, I'm not going to punish you for it. I'm going to hold your job for you. And they have to take care of themselves unless they're having a breakdown. You know, with something like a general anxiety or a panic disorder, the person could be expected to take care of themselves at some level, but they need to know that they're not going to be punished for it. I mean, we're going through a lot of uncomfortable things. You know, I think a lot of employees, (laughs) um, a lot of white people who work with black people are now thinking, oh my God, am I a racist? Do they think I'm, I mean, we're all feeling like, I don't want to talk about this. This is not what I went to business school for, but you know what? Tough shit. 
because <laughs> we are who we are. And I can only say that if you are scared to deal with your employees, quote, issues, you're already dealing with them because yeah. it's not like these things hide. People enact out their issues consciously, unconsciously every single day. And by the way, you're acting yours out too. And that's why knowing that you're anxious and knowing what triggers you and knowing all this stuff is so powerful. So if you're an anxious, in talking about working with different people and understanding anxiety and recognizing it, is an anxious introvert more likely to hide their anxiety than an anxious extrovert? Not necessarily. I mean, an anxious extrovert might talk away their anxiety or yeah. do other things. I mean, one of the most common signs of anxiety is overwork. <laughs> yeah. So think about that one. Yeah, that that is interesting. I, I think we, yeah, we we like early on in the pandemic in the first month when no one knew what was going on, no one knew who was sick. You know, we said, look, it's all hands on deck. There can't be any vacations right now. We we don't know what's going on. And then you know, we flipped to mandatory days off <laughs> about uh, a oh. month or two ago, saying we, we need you just because we could tell that people were were getting pretty fried. And did people take it beyond? Like, did they want to engage you or were they just like, thanks, I needed this? Yeah, you know, it's it, it's all really complicated because they're trying to think forward and, and for a lot of them, there's nowhere to go. <laughs> and so right. I think they wanted to like save it or when this was over and like, look, you, we don't know when this is going to be over, but we generally think that people need to be taking some, some time off and some time away now um, because... We don't know whether this is two months or two years. But to your point about an anxious extrovert, that might feel scary. I mean, if yeah. you live by yourself and to go sit by yourself in an apartment all day, probably, although you're already working remotely, that feels probably more anxiety provoking than being part of a team. And I think that that's also something that we have to understand, you know, that people need different things. Extroverts are really struggling with this. I, I, I laughed, you know, Susan Cain posted something right when this started and it said, I have to work from home and do this. And something like, I've been waiting for my whole career for this. <laughs> the introverts and I, and, you know, I had talked to some extroverts and they, yeah, they just, it's draining of their energy in the same way that you going to that environment was draining of your energy. I'm going to tell you something that's not true. So I actually just did a TED Talk yesterday about this, which hopefully you'll be seeing um, in a month or so. This kind of work is very draining for introverts, um, probably for the same reason it's very draining for extroverts. Because even if you're introverted, you probably still need that little jolt of connection to perform and to yeah. be at your best and gather your energy. And we don't get that on Zoom. I think remote work sucks for everyone. And I think that where we are now, which is like, we don't quite know how to structure an ideal day of remote work. So we just slap on a bunch of meetings on Zoom, drains everyone. And, and you have to remember that for an introvert and for someone with social anxiety, and maybe for an extrovert, being on a video call is a performance. Yeah. And there's nothing more draining than a performance. Now, for me, when I go meet with clients and I used to fly down to Washington and spend the day with them, that was a performance too. But at least I could get on the plane, get my makeup on, drink a bunch of coffee and meet my clients and you know, like have fun. Now I'm just sitting on Zoom and I'd rather be in bed. So think about that. I agree. I, I, I've actually done... Uh, we've been remote for a long time and I always said it helped that everyone was on the same thing and it helped us to use video. Mm -hmm. But I, I've actually flipped during this time. The stuff that was in person I'm doing on video, the stuff that was kind of a video and internal, I'm switching to the cell phone and I'm going for a walk outside and talking to people 
particularly because I just, I realize I can't be on Zoom all day long. I, I'm more introverted. It, it is really exhausting. And so we used to, I used, used to not do that much of it. So if I was going to reach out to someone, I'd do video. But I, today I moved three calls to my cell phone and went and walked for an hour. And I just, I felt great after those calls. I would not have felt great sitting, yeah, on video for that time. Well, actually, I used you in my TED Talk. I forgot to tell you. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I mentioned you. Did I get a TM I, there? Yeah. <laughs> I say, steal this idea from author Robert Glazer. So you suggested doing asynchronous communication yeah. where, um, and I, I, that is amazing. And also the idea that you're able to react and respond in your own time. Yeah. That's something that introverts can really have a hard time with. Um, and I love the idea of getting a big chunk of news and being able to digest it and then feedback. Yeah, I I was telling someone about it the other day, and then he he sent me one to thank me for the for the talk that I gave to his company, and and right, it would have taken him twenty minutes to write that email, and in two minutes he'd create a personal video. So I, I thought it was a funny way of of sending it back. I love that. So pandemic aside, what are some of the environmental factors in the world today that are also contributing to a culture of anxiety? Oh, where do I start? I mean, I don't want to get political. <laughs> which ones, or which ones aren't? <laughs> I think that generations are really interesting to think about this. Again, like all things, it's about intersection. What generation are you from? What gender are you? What race are you? What's your socioeconomic status? Where do you live? But I think that there is a tremendous, very real sense that the future may not be as good as the past. And you see this borne out in data. And I think that that makes us very anxious. I think that also social media has created a 24-7 sort of soundstage of other people's achievements. And that if you're an achievement-oriented person, how could you not be made anxious by being, you know, sort of slapped in the face all day of what everyone else is doing? I mean, people laugh about FOMO, but that is very real. Yeah. It doesn't make you feel good when you're constantly learning about what everyone else is doing. And I think that social mobility and risk have been really hampered by the huge economic pressures on almost everyone. And so everything is very, very weighted in a way that it wasn't. We were joking, you know, back in the 90s that you would steal your Aeron chair. But, you know, it was pretty (laughs) easy back in the 90s to get another job with health insurance. Yeah. It's not now. I think that, I mean, that's a really interesting point. I was going to actually ask you that in terms of youth and youth anxiety, because it's always like, oh, send the kid to school, have them have a better life than me. There are a lot of people who believe now with global warming and other stuff, it, it may not be better. And mm-hmm. that's, that is not an easy thing to get around. <laughs> it's really not. I mean, it's really why I've been like really doing a lot of sort of Buddhist training because I've been trying, you know, I think that, that we were, you know, my father was the child of immigrants who only spoke Yiddish. My father only spoke Yiddish until he was four years old. He created a daughter who went to two, you know, has two Ivy League degrees and jumped like four classes from just two generations. And I always think about that. I mean, hope was what kept us striving. We had so much hope. And I think that that hope for a lot of different groups right now is, it's just not there. God, sorry, that was depressing. No, but I mean, on the flip side of that, I think, you know, necessity is the mother of all invention and big problems tend to drive 
big solutions. I think a couple of people have said, I think if we, when we look back in a decade, they're probably going to be, you know, in the last recession, Uber was created, Airbnb was created, that there are just going to be some game-changing companies created that come out of this that are solving some of these problems. I hope that's true, but are they going to, you know, offer people good employment and health insurance? Yeah. Uber doesn't do that. So, you know, I think it depends, you know, how on your perspective, but I do believe, I do believe in ingenuity. I do. But I think that when you look at younger generations, especially the millennials, that their economic realities as a group, of course, there's many differences in the numbers, but make it really hard for them to take leaps. And so as a parent, what would your advice be to an anxious teenager today? Talk about it. Get them help, you know, give them resources to understand that there's a difference between anxiety and fear and their anxiety may not be true and don't diminish it. You know, but I I interviewed a wonderful uh, psychotherapist, Rebecca Kennedy, and she said the most important thing that parents can do in anxious times is to set good boundaries and stick to them. If you're deciding whether or not to send your kid back to school and you're scared about it, that's legitimate. But once you make a decision, accept that you're making the best decision you can with the information you have. Nobody knows what to do, FYI. And tell your kid, this is my decision. I made the best decision I could with what I've got. You have to stick to it. I'm your parent. Like we have a responsibility, even if we're falling apart with anxiety, to be steady in front of our children right now. It's very similar to the approach that you suggested for the manager. That's right. That's right. Not pretend like you're super happy and everything's amazing. Right. (laughs) But right. You need to be that rock. (laughs) Yeah. But not perfect either. (laughs) So Maura, what's a personal or professional mistake you've made? And it could be singular or or repeated that you learn the most from. Oh, dear. Uh, Well, I'll share one that hopefully will be helpful. Um, Part of what I later learned was caused by social anxiety was the fact that I tended to sort of talk before I spoke. And I did this a lot in meetings and in my professional life. I would want to make a good impression. I would be worried that I didn't belong in the room. I would get upset and I would just say what was ever on my mind. And as we all know, talk less, smile more, right? The great line from Hamilton. And I can point to a couple of times in my career where this really torpedoed me once so badly that I was never invited back to a client that I had worked with for many, many years. I had to learn to talk less, (laughs) which again, if you're an introvert, people think, well, you don't talk very much. Well, that's not true, actually. Not true at all. No. Just not to rooms of 800 people you haven't met before at a cocktail party. Oh, that's easy. Yeah. So I'm really working on talking less and really listening and absorbing more and gathering my thoughts because that really hurt me for many years and it wasn't helpful. That's a good lesson. Samora, where can people learn more about you and your work and this new TED Talk? Well, that's going to be on TED.com someday soon. I, you can find out all about me at my personal site, which is womenandwork.org. That's women plural. And my uh, professional, my company, Women Online, is wearewomenonline.com. You might get a theme there. <laughs> and you can tweet me at Mora A-M, which is M-O-R-R-A-A-M. All right. Well, thank you very much for joining us today to share your story. Oh, thank you so much. 
To our listeners, thanks for tuning in to the Elevate podcast today. We'll include links to Mora and our work on the detailed episode page at robertglazer.com. Thanks again for your support. Until next time, keep elevating. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join Podcast Royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox or wherever you listen to your podcasts.